0: A Podcast One Production. Oh, that's a girly one. Big questions. It's fair to say that pain doesn't have a great rap. You just have to look at phrases like "she's a pain," "oh, that's a bit of a pain." He's acting like a real pain in the dot, dot, to know that we don't, you know, we're not big fans of pain, but how much do we understand about what pain is and what we can do about it? Well, that's where our guest today fits in. Professor Lorimer Mosley is a clinical neuroscientist from the University of South Australia who studies pain. Welcome, Lorimer. How are you? Thanks, Adam. Uh, Look, I'm very well. I'm pain-free right now. Now I'm in
1: pain. Now I'm pain-free.
0: Talk Bizarre, about that. right? <laughs> Tell us a bit about yourself. Give us your background before getting to today.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it's career background that's most relevant to that. Uh, you don't want to know that I'm a child of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle-class family. There you go. Uh, I did physiotherapy as an undergraduate degree. Worked as a physio for seven or eight years. Treated a fellow I remember really badly. I, I treated him. I had no idea what was going on with him. Uh, proposed something preposterous. Uh, and he happened to be the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and said, you should do a PhD. So, uh, you know, I think he was trying to get me out of clinical practice or something. <laughs> but I did a PhD in effectively in, in how the brain controls movement when you're in pain. Uh, I then did postdoctoral research looking at the role of the brain in persistent pain problems, worked at University of Queensland, worked at University of Oxford in the UK. Uh, one night in the UK, my wife came in and said, "Lozzie, I want to go home. Uh, and all of my reasons for not wanting to come home were vanity mm-hmm. and hers were pretty noble. So we came back to Australia, um, and I took up a position at University of South Australia doing human
0: neuroscience research. Now, Laura, I mean, you told a story at TEDx in Adelaide a couple of years ago that concerned you, uh, bushwalking. And, uh, I remember you gave the audience the detail that didn't seem necessary to me that you're wearing a sarong, but, uh. <laughs> Let's take that visual image. Something happened to you on that bushwalk that is a great sort of illustration of your theory about what we do and don't know about pain. Can you tell that story again for the listeners, please? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I've told this story uh, to,
1: to thousands of patients. And the, and the reason we tell this story to people is, as you say, helps us understand how the system works. The sarong actually is quite important because okay. I don't want anyone to think I'm too much of a nerd mm-hmm. as a professor. Sure. So wear the sarong. Breaks down barriers. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was camping in the in the Australian bush and I like to get up early in the morning, beautiful time of day, mm-hmm. put on my sarong, went for a walk. Uh, and and at the time, all, I mean, all I remember of this scenario was that I was walking along, you know, felt like a scratch from a twig or something like that uh, on my leg, kicked it off. Uh, and just that little episode is a great way to understand what what actually happened Mm. then physiologically. Uh, and we could summarize it to say, well, uh, something happened on the outside of my left leg in the skin. We've got touch detectors. We've got all sorts of amazing, uh, we call them mechanoreceptors, right? So things that, that detect
0: mechanical pressure if you like, mechanical forces. So something in your foot has detected the feeling of something else impacting on the side of your foot.
1: Yeah, so so the the stimulus that goes across the, the calf, if you like, the outside of the calf, was detected. Rapid messages go straight to the brain and effectively tell the brain something's touched the outside of your left leg and the skin. And they sort of say it quickly. It's, it's a very fast system. Mm-hmm. Triggers motor, you know, movement responses and things like that. Meanwhile... Whatever that thing was, was sufficiently dangerous to activate specialized receptors we have all over our body. Uh, and we call them, in the, in the hood, we call them nociceptors, which means danger
0: detector. Okay. Literally means danger detector, right? And, and so these are different to the other detectors that just told you, oh, you felt something down there, you've bumped into something. Exactly. They
1: detect danger. They detect danger, but they can't tell you anything about the danger. They rely on the other nerves to tell you something about it right Mm -hmm. so so they would have taken a message to my spinal cord and and release of neurotransmitters chemicals released into a particular place in the spinal cord which is effectively saying there's danger on the outside of your left leg in the skin and then that's detected by by the next nerve in our system uh which may or may not send us message to the brain saying there's danger in this location in your skin so that would have said, danger on the outside of your left leg in the skin. And then the brain has to do the really powerful processing. Mm-hmm. And this is what I love about what I do, Adam. Like the complexity of this system is, is inconceivable, mm-hmm.
0: right? Because in your brain's an- dealing with it. Your brain's had a couple of messages here yep. about your leg. I brush something and, ooh, actually this could be a bit serious.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe 100 milliseconds later, so a tenth of a second later, the serious message comes in. And then the brain evaluates, okay, uh, what should I do? What should this organism, of which I am the controller, do in this scenario? Uh, and the only way I make sense of my experience is that, that the brain very rapidly, instantaneously captured where I was in the bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all visual information that gives you that. Mm-hmm. You know that it's what you're doing. It captured that I was halfway through a step. My leg was in a certain location in, in the world in space. Uh, It captured that I was walking, that I was in a sarong with bare feet. And and then it captured a whole lot of information that's stored in my brain. Most relevant here, I think, is that growing up,
0: I walked in the bush with bare feet all the time, getting scratches on my legs. So it's recalling similar sensations, similar visual sensations, wondering, is any, anything I've got in the library here exactly. relevant in letting me decide what I should do right now?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and in that split second, I think my brain decided, right, you should get rid of that thing, kick it off. And that's it. There's no need for concern. And, It's a uh, pretty good
0: chance you've brushed a branch or a rock or something right. like you did a million times growing up. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and in that instant, the brain will immediately send messages down my spinal cord to say, forget about it. Don't give me any more info. Right? And then mm-hmm. I carried on my merry way. That was fine. I jumped in the river, uh, got out of the river, started walking back to the campsite. And that's the last I remember mm-hmm. of that scenario. Because and it wasn't a twig. It was not a twig. It was an, an Eastern brown snake bite. Uh, deadly snake. Uh, venom works by, by a few different ways, one of which is to stimulate neurons. So, my brain actually would have been getting these messages, danger, danger, danger. But it concluded because of context and because of the other cues and because of stored information, don't protect. You don't need to protect. The sequel to the story is nine months later. Right? So I almost died. You know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was very sick and uh, uh, had a lot of problems for, for months after that. Six or well, maybe nine months later, I was walking in the bush again uh and in a sarong? no i was not in a sarong, oh. and and uh maybe things would have been even worse if i was okay uh but i was walking in uh in the bush and you know, had had a similar scenario so something touched the outside of my left leg in the skin same messages run to the brain uh Whatever it was, was dangerous enough to detect danger detectors. Message goes to the spinal cord. There's danger in the outside of your left leg in the skin. That message gets up to the brain and the brain evaluates in a split second. Okay, where am I? Well, you're in the bush. What are you doing? Well, you're halfway through a step and you're walking Mm -hmm. uh, and your skin's exposed. And then it draws on that historical information that's stored forever in my amazing complex organ of the brain. But this time, the answer to the question, what should I do, is really different. The answer to the question now is, you need to do something to save your life. And the the best way the brain can alert me to that need is to make my leg hurt. So there I was. I I was on the side of the walking track in agony, white-hot poker pain screaming up my leg. And the people I was walking with, uh, you know, they stopped and they're looking for the snake until someone thought, well, let's check out the bite. And there was a nice little scratch from a twig.
0: <laughs> and, you know, that's a bit embarrassing. I, it
1: really hurt. And, and a lot of people, a lot of health professionals would hear a story like that and conclude, oh, so you were exaggerating the feeling? And I, my response to them would be, no, no, no. Uh, the feeling was horrible. It was a brutal pain. It's just that now as pain scientists, we understand that the system will
0: do that if it's convinced you need protecting. So the pain is not the impact of the damage on your leg. It's the brain's interpretation of the signals that it's given from that impact. Almost. So if you had have asked me that
1: question 10 years ago, I would have said, yes, bang, you've got it. We've moved on now, and I would just reword that slightly to say it, the first part's completely right. Pain is not a measure of, of the impact on the tissues. Pain is, is a reflection of what the brain thinks you should do now. So it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. I, I think we now think the brain could conclude, okay, this is dangerous for your shoulder, but you should not protect your shoulder now because you're in a life-threatening battle situation. So you don't have shoulder pain, like you know. For example, someone who's had their arm ripped off in war, mm. uh, we know that catastrophic injuries like that are actually often completely unpainful until people are safe, until their livelihood is protected. So we now say that pain is a reflection of the brain's evaluation of your of of the
0: benefit of protecting that body part. Now, there's that one elf example of you with the the twig versus the snake, and that yeah. would that would be an example that would bolster that theory. But we need obviously more than that yeah. small sample size of you off bushwalking. Yeah. But you've done a lot of experiments on when people will register pain or won't that, that do back up this theory that it's all about the way the brain chooses to respond to stimuli. Walk the listeners through a couple of examples of those sort of experiments that sure. really show the crucial role the brain plays here. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've done a few experiments.
1: The the one that I think most people find easiest to grasp is a a really cute experiment where we got supposedly normal healthy volunteers. So Mm -hmm. uh, we probably have to concede these people are not normal because they're volunteering for pain experiments. Sure. So so, (laughs) taking that into consideration.
0: (laughs) Yeah, If you're willing to volunteer for something at, for experimental work at the pain clinic. Yep. You're a particular sort of dude. Possibly you are, yeah. You're a I man who rolls a bit differently. <laughs> but within right. that group of people, what did you do with them?
1: Uh, so, these healthy people, we gave them a very cold stimulus on the back of the hand that normally would hurt. It's minus 20 degrees Celsius, uh, so it hurts. What we also did simultaneously is that we just had a light in front of them. Uh, and for half of the trials, a blue light would come, a light blue light like sky blue, would mm-hmm. come on. And for half of the trials, a bright red light would come on.
0: At the time that the cold hit their hand. Exactly, yeah. Uh,
1: and we did a few different conditions. So so long as it was broadly in time, it, they could always see it, right? Uh, we chose light blue and red because they are really powerful cues for temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Red is hot, blue is cold. We know that when you put very cold stimuli on your hand, we have danger detectors that send a message, but we also have these other thermal detectors that send a message. The reason we did that was to test the idea that the pain that's evoked would might be different according to what you see at the time. And the result of that study was really compelling. That uh, on average, pain with the blue light was about four, three out of ten. Pain with the red light was about five and a half out of ten. So this is a this is a massive difference.
0: But what's happening at the hand is always the same. What's different is the visual cue. So the impact on the tissue of my body doesn't change. No. But my brain interprets the information and the visual cues and reacts differently depending on the totality of the information it's getting.
1: Absolutely. And the information that's stored, that's the key, right? We've, we've got this information stored saying red is hot and dangerous, blue is cool and not dangerous, uh, I don't need to protect from this cool stimulus, so I won't make it hurt. I do need to protect from this very hot, dangerous stimulus. And we can make sense of that you know, by evolution. You know, for all Since we had fire, red was highly dangerous and, and blue has not been. So that's one example. Another example that might be uh, a bit surprising for people that I reckon is quite cool is uh, we do experiments with laser guns. They, they give you a little painful stimulus. Uh, We did an experiment where we randomly allocated some people to just read a piece of paper uh, telling them about how safe lasers were, right? They're used in supermarkets. They're used on things that some people might remember called compact discs. Mm -hmm. You know, they're every day. They're part of everyday life. Uh, The other piece of paper told us how dangerous lasers were. Uh, They're banned in warfare because Mm -hmm. of the danger. You can blind a pilot from five kilometers. They're used to cut through iron bars. And then we just gave these people laser stimuli. Uh, and if you get the first piece of information, it hurts about two points on a 10 point
0: scale less on average than if you get the second piece of information. So again, the brain is taking not just the impact on tissue and the messages it's getting, but the totality of information Absolutely, and responding. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, you know, other, other groups have done uh, studies looking at, uh, giving, giving someone a, a noxious or a painful stimulus after they give them fart spray. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah. fart spray, being in, in, in the disgusting smell, uh, increases your withdrawal reflex from another stimulus and increases the pain of the stimulus.
0: What about can you can people can you make people feel pain when there's nothing happening? These are these are yeah. aca- examples of where there is some yeah, impact, yeah. and my brain is in inverted commas overreacting or underreact. Can you make me feel pain? with a, you know, a device when there's nothing happening to me? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, we don't- The we, smile on your face when yeah. you said yes. <laughs> oh, dear. You know, the the deceit of some of these experiments is pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I think the, the most powerful example of that with a range of studies is an American group. Um, first author is Bayer, I think. Mm-hmm. They've done a range of studies using a uh a method that's called a sham head stimulator. Mm-hmm. So it's this device that they put over your head. It doesn't touch your skull or your head, but it sits around your head. And then they they just manipulate aspects of the environment. So they might say, uh, okay, Adam, can you see the intensity knob here? So this is how high the head stimulator is on. I'm just going to turn up that head stimulator so it's sending currents through your brain. Uh, I just want you to tell me anything you feel and we'll do some tests. And uh, this group has shown quite clearly that, you will have head pain that matches, you know, that goes up in line with the intensity knob, right? And there is literally there's, nothing there's happening no, to it. There's nothing happening. right? So that's experimental evidence. Right? We have a lot of clinical evidence where we, we take people with very painful, a very painful hand, a particular condition that we know is exquisitely painful. Uh, we then get them to look in a mirror on, at their other hand, right? So it looks to their brain like they might be looking at their painful hand. Uh, And then we just touch their good hand and they hurt. They feel pain on their bad hand, right? So they get this visual input of touch is enough for their brain to say, protect your bad hand. So we have those, we have experiments in, we do more clinical populations for that. But uh, the people who do the head stimulating devices, I mean, that's the groovy part about that paradigm is that, that they can also manipulate the experimenter. Right so mm-hmm. they've done studies where they tell the PhD student or the student who's doing the experiment this is a powerful head stimulating device be careful with it we don't want to burn the brains out of these <laughs> subjects and when they do that the incline in the line gets greater right so so they're
0: accused that that person is delivering the experimenter about the danger of this this device. That's making the person to whom nothing is happening. Nothing it, nothing is happening through the head simulator, but uh, masses of stuff are happening through cues. So you're saying if, if, the, if that thing is doing nothing to me and you turn it up to seven, I'll feel a degree of pain. But if you're, even though there's nothing happening to me, if you're nervously turning it up to seven, I will feel even more pain. Yeah than I would have if you'd confidently turned it up to seven as though yeah. you weren't about to fry me.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and there's a version of this experiment. It's my favorite experiment in Painfield, uh, done by a guy called Richard Gracely, uh, And they, they looked at people who were having their wisdom teeth removed mm-hmm. and they gave them this powerful analgesic called fentanyl. It's a more, part of the morphine family. Cool experiment because they went to half of the dentists and said, I'm really sorry, we don't have any fentanyl. You'll be injecting the placebo. Right? But don't tell your patients. Right? In reality, every patient had a 50% chance. So they were lying to the dentists. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they looked at the pain-relieving effect of placebo across everyone. The people who had a dentist who thought they could not be injecting the drug got worse with the placebo, obviously worse. The people who had a dentist who thought they, were, they might be injecting fentanyl, they got better with the placebo, right? The difference was what the dentist thought they were injecting, right? And then they ask a third person to watch the video of this interaction and say, which group do you think this dentist is in? And they can't pick it. They cannot pick it. But something is being communicated between the confident clinician who thinks they might be relieving your pain and the clinician who thinks this is going to be useless.
0: And that's adding to the amount of information the person who's receiving the needle is processing and the decisions their brain is therefore making.
1: Exactly, yeah. So it's the, it's the opposite of protection. It's information to say you
0: don't need to protect as much. Right? That's Any treatment does this. When you were bushwalking and the brown snake bit you, and it, so if you hadn't been bushwalking and exactly the same thing had been happening, if you'd been sitting at home on your lounge and the same thing had happened... Would your brain have reacted differently and would you have felt more pain because it would not be typical to feel that sensation sitting at home stationary on a couch? Beautiful
1: question, Adam. Uh, it nails the concept. I, obviously I don't know because I haven't done the experiment. but it would be a tough experiment <laughs> to convince you to do. <laughs> Hard to get ethics for that. <laughs> uh, I, would be, I would be very confident predicting yes. It should hurt a lot outside of that, that context. And we see that scenario a lot people who have uh, chronic neck pain pain's getting better things are going well they go back to the intersection that they had the car accident at and their pain returns right so those
0: contextual cues are very important but yeah the simple answer yeah i bet i would have been in agony i'm adam spencer i'll be back with some more big questions soon so i'm talking with professor emotionally about what is pain and we'll, we'll discuss soon the massive role that chronic pain plays in people's lives and in hampering uh, the entire Australian economy. You're on The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer, back with Professor Lorimer-Mosley talking about pain. Let me ask you, Lorimer, about another couple of types of things about pain, a specific one of examples of pain, and I want to know if you have any theories on this sort of stuff, referred pain. I went through a period of time where I was getting uh, uh, infections in my wonky eye because the eye wasn't closing at night, and a couple of times I had to go and have all medicines and all that. And each time when they asked me to explain, so where where do you feel the small cut is? Where's the infection in your own? Right? It's right up there on the top left. You know, that's, a, that's interesting because it's actually a different, completely different part of your eye. Right. The pain was being referred. The brain was interpreting the pain as existing in a spot where the impact on my body was actually not. And you hear about if someone has a heart attack, they often feel it in an arm or their leg or back rather than where the heart is uh, attacking. What's going on there and how much do we understand about referred pain? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. So there's probably two broad categories of
1: referred pain. The first category that's really well understood uh, can best be conceptualised as though you have a a train line. So here in Sydney, you know, most of the rural trains will stop at Strathfield on the way into into Mm -hmm. Central Station, right? So, Uh, You might have one train that's coming from from Melbourne, stops at Strathfield, another train that's coming from Broken Hill, stops at Strathfield, Uh, but they, in a situation where both of those trains say, well, let's send one train on from Strathfield to Central. When the train gets to Central, you don't know whether they've come from Broken Hill or Melbourne, right? So we call this convergence in sensory pathways, and the brain has no mechanism of determining which was the original location of the message, right? So our most referred pain that can be consistently reproduced. So if if you, if in your situation with your wonky eye, if you were always feeling it in that location, right, even though it was the, the wrong location, we would explain that by convergence, right, to sensory pathways coming together as a matter of efficiency. And there are consistent things across people um, but they're also individual quirky
0: stuff, just mm-hmm. the circuitry of how we developed. So with the heart attacks, and it's consistently reported that people yeah. are having heart it, attacks, they'll feel the pain, I think, in their, their lower left arm or something like that. So when I'm having the heart attack, something else is happening in my lower left arm at the same time? And that,
1: no. Will... Well, probably not, but but the message coming from the heart, the brain has no reliable mechanism to locate the source at your heart. Because through your development, that nerve pathway on the second half of the journey has also always taken information from your hand, for example, from your arm. Uh, And in this situation, the brain
0: just concludes, well, the problem's in the arm because that's where it's been my whole life. Phantom pain. Yeah. The phenomenon of if someone loses a limb and they still feel like they've they can feel pain in a wrist that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Or I've heard of experiments where you you convince someone by, you know, hurting something that's not theirs but in a mirror they think it is theirs. What's phantom pain? Well, phantom pain is fascinating and
1: and has been responsible for triggering some major shifts in thought about pain. Uh, the whole idea that you can have pain in midair, uh, you know, in a body part that doesn't exist is is. Truly fascinating and has been for centuries, right? But we now they understand talk about
0: it. soldiers coming back from the American Civil War were yeah. still, you know, experiencing pain in in the wrist of an arm that didn't exist below the shoulder anymore. Didn't exist, yeah. I mean, uh, some of the ancient Greeks wrote about phantom pain. Um, the way we
1: understand it is if you if you think you can't experience any pain without your your bo- body being represented in your brain, so your brain has these maps of your body, right? And that's that's one. That's how we function. Right? Someone touches you, your brain creates that sense of touch on the map of your body. We know that your body maps are in place uh, regardless of whether you've got the body part, right? So phantom limb pain is far more common in someone who's had an amputation, particularly later in life, after they're five, uh, because the maps are so well sorted. And the the brain cells that... that represent your body so that hold that map get an input from somewhere else and fire and when they fire your brain produces pain in the body part that should be connected to it Hmm. right so uh it's completely real completely real brutal and and i would say very distressing because people know they don't have that body part they can't do anything to that body part Hmm. right and the, the best way to treat phantom limb pain is to to use methods that tell the brain, yes, the body part is there. So uh, mirrors, uh, the most effective thing we can do to prevent uh, phantom limb pain after amputation is get people into a a prosthetic, a responsive prosthetic, as soon as we can after the amputation, and that reduces the risk of phantom
0: limb pain. Because you've then got as good as you're going to get still that body part, and and so the brain it's it, it, it's a yeah. more normal situation for the brain.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is this is an area of conversation in my field that and and one model at the moment is that the pain reflects uh, a kind of confusion. Hmm. Uh, I'm getting sensory input from a body part that I'm trying to move, but I'm not getting any confirmation, and this is bad news. Uh, so, there are examples of of people putting their their phantom behind a mirror and replacing the mirror you know, with a mirror image of the other hand and mm. getting immediate pain relief. There's a great scene on House that that mm. showed Dr. House. I've never seen something as radical as that and I would certainly not advocating any doctor kidnapping their patient under sedation like he did. But <laughs> uh, nonetheless, we have had examples of people who carry a, a mirror around with them for when their phantom hand pain flares up, they get out the mirror and... And stick the hand. Convince behind
0: it. themselves the reflection of their right hand is really their left hand. Then they see yeah. that, and the pain that they're experiencing in a non-existing left hand can yeah. be managed.
1: Yeah, and, and and it reduces significantly sometimes. And it's the visual
0: input. I mean, vision is the is the big kahuna, right? It's very powerful. Two more everyday examples: the athlete you hear about who, in inverted commas, can play through pain. Yeah. So we've got two. AFL players who've had exactly the same injury one of them's out for four or five weeks one of them's back in only a couple of weeks not in terms of having healed, they're hurting but they're just yep. tough enough to play through or they injure themselves in the middle of a game and they play it then Is that person, are those two players feeling the same amount of pain and one of them just deals with it better?
1: Glorious question Adam. It's so insightful actually because the the, I do a bit of work with Elite Sport and mm-hmm the presumption is that the difference between those two people is solely pain tolerance. Hmm, One's a bit tougher. Yeah, but your question speaks to what we think is more accurate and and that is that uh, even though they are exceptional human beings, elite athletes are humans, right? And the human is considering every piece of information and also we learn pain, right? So uh, we might have one of those athletes has got a history of hamstrings, right? And the other one doesn't, then that will affect their pain buffer right? Mm -hmm. The other, the other part that I loved about your question is that it's, it's more likely in my understanding that the difference between those two athletes will be the amount of pain they're experiencing, Mm. not their tolerance of pain. Because to be an elite athlete, you tolerate pain. And, and the difference between athletes is not so much in that as in what, when their system produces pain. So in, in our lingo, we would call that the size of the protective buffer. Mm-hmm. Pain is a protective buffer. Yeah, yeah. Unless something happens really quickly or you're really distracted, pain always stops injury. That's how it should work, mm-hmm. right? But if it happens too quickly, it doesn't work. If you're really distracted or, or the prize of, of winning the marathon is, is more influential in the brain cells that constitute you than protecting your legs that have got these danger messages screaming out then then you might, get, you might get damaged, right, because you want to win. Mm-hmm. And, but that's all unconscious. They're, they're drivers. Aside from that, the, the things that make us champions, I think, are the physiology of the system, and that's cool, but the, real, the really important one is the size of the protective buffer. And some people are able to squeeze their protective buffer to the smallest margin possible, and they're the ones who win the gold medals win the Tour de France, uh, in my view. Mm-hmm. It, the difference does not lie in whether they're tough or not. It lies in an unconscious system within them that incorporates everything from physiology, biomechanics,
0: to immune-mediated synapses in their brain. But you can train it up a bit if you've pushed yourself to the pain barrier a few times before. Do you get better at Can Can, can you make your, pain, your, 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 yeah. your protective barrier it narrower and more resilient? Yeah, you can, yeah. Uh, and and that's, what,
1: that's what athletes do. Mm. Uh, and they expose themselves. They, they go into the buffer, and it really hurts. And after that trial, that's a learning trial, that the brain realises, okay, that wasn't actually damaging in mm. the end. And well, I then, remember
0: hearing a story a couple of years ago from the, the Brisbane Broncos Rugby League team, I think had their pre-season three-kilometre run. And Darren Lockyer, who was in his 30s, <clears throat> and had played 250 games by then or something like that, he won the three-kilometre run. Now, he's using wow. a body that has been belted around yeah, yeah. and would not be as physiologically fit and tough as some of the 22-, 23-year-olds, but he just had that sort of ugly old man, Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. that that's So he's he's felt the pain before and he knows it won't stop him and he's better at dealing with it in that sense Or There's that, but there's also
1: that because because your system has produced the pain. So that's the language we use. He, mm-hmm. The brain produces pain rather than registers or perceives because the pain is something, it's a construction of the brain. right? This is the groovy part mm-hmm. about pain. It's like consciousness. It's, it's entirely conscious. Right? You can't have pain and not know you've got pain. You can have injury and not know. Mm-hmm. You can have danger messages and not know. You can't have pain and not know. So you know, Darren Lockyer example is a is a great one where I would I would say that he's exposed himself to enough pre seasons that his brain is less likely to protect him or protects him a bit later in in the danger message journey mm-hmm. than those twenty three year olds, and we see that in Aussie rules. You know, people once they do a few pre seasons, uh, they're they're clearly more capable than pre seasons, and part of that is is the system learns, okay, I don't need to protect you just yet.
0: My girlfriend wanted me to ask a question about period pain, and I want to ask a question of my own about it. She wanted to ask about period pain, why when period pain leaves, once it finishes, she feels not that she has returned to normal, but she feels on a natural high like she could run through a brick wall for some period of time. Why when the pain abates, does she not feel she's returned to normal hmm. but she feels that she's moved to a heightened state of feeling good now it's a small sample size and it's her self reporting but does that phenomenon sure. make sense yeah sure I, and i'm pleased that the question
1: allows me to to not talk specifically about period pain mm-hmm. because it's it's very complex actually but that phenomenon that she is observing is quite well recognized and there are there are entire research groups who study the the pleasure of relief, mm-hmm. uh, and there, are, there is some understanding of the molecules that are involved in, in when we have a noxious situation, so a, a period is a great example, that there, there are probably danger messages coming at the brain, then that will normally trigger systems in the brain to relieve morphine-like molecules. Uh, and they also stimulate reward systems. That's why people get yeah. addicted to opioids. Right. They get addicted to gambling and Mm -hmm. stuff because of these reward systems. So they're normally releasing this. And now if, if the danger detection stops, but they're still carrying on, then that would explain a high, right? So there are molecular stuff that people understand to explain that. Phenomenologically, so just looking, observing that, that phenomenon, one could easily say, well, you've been in pain for three or four days it's just so good not to be in pain that that in itself triggers serotonin, mm-hmm. encephalins, endorphins. And you know, the way we talk about this with patients is that that opens the drug cabinet in the brain. It's always there, this drug cabinet in the brain. Powerful analgesic drugs. And, and we try and teach people how to access that. It's never closed. It's open 24 hours. You, know, you, mm. you can get, don't need a prescription. Uh, that might be one inadvertent method by which she is opening the drug cabinet in the brain.
0: And you get the euphoria. And my follow-up question, and I apologise in advance, uh, female listeners in particular, if I'm displaying a great naivety in this question. But you said there are certain, like the pre-season athlete going for their fifth or sixth pre-season has trained themselves to understand certain signal blah. Why then, for women who experience significant period pain, after five years of that, why does it not hurt Less when when you when you've yeah after twenty years and you're having your two hundredth period yeah wouldn't the brain realize it's getting exactly the same signals I'm guessing shouldn't it be starting to say to you, well this is not going to kill me there's no need to freak out particularly I mean, this is not much fun but this is not going to hurt the brain can't, does or does the brain self regulate in that situation yeah that's beautiful um I there are
1: two processes that we know can occur and probably do occur when you have repeated noxious or repeated danger messages from your tissues, right? So one is called sensitization. The system learns pain. And, and that's, that's the explanation we give to the vast majority of people with persistent pain. The system has learned to protect. Uh, and there are a lot of contributors to that. And we understand the biology of that really heaps better than we used to and, and really well. Uh, the other thing that happens is the type of preseason effect, where your system learns. Okay, yeah, this isn't dangerous. Uh, there are two really important differences, I think, between those two scenarios. One preseason, two hundred preseasons, we might have a different mm-hmm. effect, right? Uh, and and the other is is that elite athletes see the a true benefit of the. And I'm putting my fingers up for quotation the the pain they experience in preseason, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you don't ever see the you know, when you're not having a period, I imagine no one sees the benefit of the period being painful. That, that offers you no advantage. Mm-hmm. So maybe that, that is a contributor to that space. And, and as well as that, you know, period, period pain is, is often associated with, with physiological tissue based changes, you know, in and around your uterus mm-hmm. that happen every, every month, uh, and send legitimate danger messages pre season you're in total control of the work you do, right? But in a period, you're not in total control of...
0: With the preseason, you're choosing to do that for an identifiable exactly. goal with a group of other people. You're doing that leads to everyone's success. There's a lot of positive association you can have with why you're experiencing that pain. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it makes sense that your brain over time would say, oh, I shouldn't stop this. Mm. But it makes, it makes sense alternatively that that your brain doesn't have a solution, doesn't have an explanation for period pain every time it arrives wants to protect you from it.
0: Let's move quickly to the big closing one here, chronic pain. The idea of people who suffer pain for years or the entirety of the rest of their lives. Yeah. The economic impact on Australia is in the in the tens of billions of dollars per year.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, it's Adam, it's <laughs> it's ridiculously massive. And this is not an Australian alone problem. This is the the European Union has identified persistent pain, chronic pain, uh, as the health challenge facing Europe. Uh, The US has just, I think they've just declared or they're about to uh, national state of emergency on the opioid crisis. Mm. Uh,
0: There are people dying in the States in their thousands from... Addiction to opioid drugs and pain medications.
1: Yeah. Well, and Australia is, I mean, we're, we're not in the same raw numbers, but the number of people who die from accidental opioid overdose has doubled in the last 10 years mm. in Australia. And people are getting prescribed these things for pain. Now, the people who are dying are not necessarily the people who got prescribed mm. uh, because there's a black market for this and you know, there's a lot of factors involved. But the cost, I mean, to give you an idea that in in most Oh, if we talk about Britain, the US, and Australia, that's where we know the data best. Mm. Uh, persistent pain would cost us more than cancer and diabetes combined. Uh, as far as years lived with disability, low back pain is the most burdensome health issue on the planet. Uh, it's it's quite remarkable uh, if you if you think about the financial cost. Mm. Uh, it's quite remarkable that we're we're still having oh well, almost still having conversations like like this, there's a lot of this science is 20 or 30 years old, but the, the challenge that people like me face is that there's aspects to it w- that are not intuitively sensible. You know, I put a thumb tack into my thumb, I don't, if I did, and push harder, it hurts more. So it's very compelling that, that pain is measuring damage. Mm-hmm. We've, we've learned in the last 30 years that the system learns pain. So most people with persistent pain do not have
0: persistent injury. We now know that the injury's gone or the injury's improved a lot and they should not be feeling the pain they're feeling? Both of those
1: scenarios may apply. In any individual case, uh, we have very good systems in place to identify, well, has the tissue healed? Usually it does. Uh, most, I would argue most people with persistent pain, their pain is is just not explained by a problem in the tissues. There may be a slight problem in the tissues, but we now know the best way to adapt your tissues is to put load through them, you know, get moving and those sorts of things. But people understandably with persistent pain are, are often scared to do that because they think they're broken.
0: So where's your research going? Someone, someone who's hurt their lower back and they've done a genuine injury to start and it's yep. hurt a lot and that's understandable. Yep. But now 12 months on, the back has improved substantially. Yep. There might still be some injury there, but the back's improved substantially they're still feeling significant pain and that pain's going to keep going unless we do something. What do we need to do there? Do we need to teach that person to just live with that pain or do we need to make them feel less pain? What do, yeah. What are we aiming at? That's
1: great. I feel like I could have <laughs> sent you these questions. It's just <laughs> ideal. I mean, it, really, the grasp you have of the field is outstanding. Well done.
0: This is where the natural cu- curiosity is yeah. taking me. This is where your yeah. answers are taking me. Well, so,
1: Look, uh, we we know, and we've known for thirty years, that that individual uh, can improve their life, whether or not their pain changes. Right? And there's a lot of techniques. They're basically cognitive and behavioural techniques in the psychological field, uh, lifestyle type stuff. And you would have heard of things like ACT and
0: mindfulness and all that. That's all good. Uh, so you can you can ex- the, the pa- you can still sense the pain. But you can get on with at least an aspect, you know, aspects of your life, even though you're still registering that pain.
1: Yeah, you can still have quality of life, but still have pain, mm-hmm. right? But that's not what excites me, and that's not my research as much. My research is is driven by this fundamental capacity of biology to adapt, uh, and then we have all this empirical data that show that when people understand what pain really is, that it's not a measure of the state of their body. It's a, it's a reflection of every piece of information about protection. When they understand that, and then they go, they go searching for what we call DIMS, which stands for evidence of danger in me. So they might be movements, but they might be people and places and thoughts and lifestyle aspects and all that. They go searching for DIMS to try to remove them, right? And they go searching for SIMS, evidence of safety in me, to try and collect them. And then they undergo a graded exposure, Right, which effectively means we get below their flare-up line. We help them to understand how can you get below your flare-up line, and then train your system to be less protective.
0: What are what are examples? If if I I've got this back injury, I'm this hypothetical person. What are DIMs that I could be removing, and SIMs that I could be improving my grasp of? What sort of things impact on people's lives in those ways?
1: Well, uh, DIMs we could start throwing them off in in many domains. So, sleep, sleep loss, sleep habits, food habits. Uh, exercise habits, if you're unfit, uh, what do you think is the problem, right? I, I saw a patient a few months ago who called himself the Roman ruins. And I said, you know, what, why do you call yourself that? He said, well, you, have you seen my x-ray? And I looked at his x-ray and it's a typical 55-year-old's x-ray with signs of adaptation in, in bony structure. In his mind, he's ruined. So we want to, we would say we want to remove that dim, that belief and the fact that he calls himself that and he says he's got a dodgy back, you know, all this sort of stuff, they're all dims. What you think, so we go, we th- go through our system. What you think, what you say, what you hear, so what your loved ones are saying about you, uh, the things you see, so you might you know, see posters of, of discs swollen on the wall of the physio.
0: That's a dim for
1: some people. Places you go, workplace, might be a dim. No, These are things. all
0: part of the things that are sitting in that toolbox that the brain looks into when it is feeling any sensations and decides what how much do. should I be reacting. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess
1: what, what we really want at the moment, you said, you know, where is your research going? So uh, my research does some stuff at that more basic end where we do fundamental experiments that we've spoken about in the laboratory. But also what can we do at the clinical end and at the population end. So we, we're heavily involved in the population space at the moment. We want people to think differently about pain. We want someone, when they're in pain, to ask their health professional three new questions. right? And that, that first question is, how do I know if my pain system is overprotective? Second one is, how can I train it to be less protective? And then we we want clinicians to be coaches, right? talk you through it, uh, and it will be very individually specific, but you'll find a path. And the third one is, how do I know if I'm safe to move? Because of everything we've learnt about, the most effective thing we can do is move. Uh, We just need to make sure we progress that in a way that doesn't set off that protective response. I mean, when you're overprotected, you're literally overprotected. It's very hard to injure yourself if you're progressing slowly. But it's not very hard to have a flare-up, which is a protective pain response. It's not an injury, but the system becomes very sensitive and it's easy to go over the line of of protection if people understand we've got very good data on this that if people understand that a flare up is protective stopping them from injuring not an indicator they have injured then the flare up loses its power you know people who were in bed for 4 days now are in bed for 3 hours you know so understand in my view that the two critical things are understanding and then getting a coach to help you start moving again. And then all the other stuff is really important, you know, how you think and lifestyle. It's very important. Uh, but if, if someone was to say, I can only do two things, what is it? I would say understand and slowly get moving.
0: Uh, Professor Laura moseley it has been anything other than a pain speaking <laughs> to you today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for answering some big questions on uh, what is pain. Thanks so much, Adam. It's been, a, it's been great this episode of the big questions as always was produced and edited by alex mitchell in the podcast one studios executive producer jamie show series producer caroline pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at uncanny valley if you want to hear more big questions answered go to podcastone.com.au or download the podcast one app or look us up on itunes i'm adam spencer i'll be back with some more big questions soon Questions.